0: visit the all-in-gospel.com website. All right, in your Bibles, we're in Numbers 13, and we're gonna do two chapters tonight. <laughs> That's right. Um, as a, As a context for Numbers 13, they have learned in chapter 11 and 12, we've seen various steps of going from just general complaining to specific complaining to outright rebellion against Moses. This chapter picks up right where we left off. It just keeps getting progressively kind of further along. Uh, They are supposed to do things without fear. Um, And we have this long list of things that they have not done. So the next two chapters, which is part of why we're doing them together, Um, I just want to point out before we start and we get into any of this, these are the people, remember, that didn't go for the quail. They didn't grumble and complain. They weren't the people that God had to burn on the edges of the camp. These are the faithful believers that have been following the cloud and doing it the right way. And for me, that's totally convicting. These are, in by today's standards, we're now talking about the Christians that are in the camp doing what God wants them to do. And they screw up in two different ways. Um, so that's what we're getting to tonight. So, uh, and the Lord, verse one, and the Lord spoke to Moses. Notice again that it starts with and. We're in one continuous narrative here um, as we go through these pieces. Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were the heads of the children of Israel. So they're going to go and they're going to do reconnaissance. They're sending spies out into the land. Specifically, they're sending 12 spies. I think this would be a great movie, like to see these 40 days and play it out. And you'd have all these personalities. Um, But a question before we get any further in this is, did they need to do this? Was God going to give them the land? Yep, it's been promised in Exodus twenty-three, three, twenty-three, twenty-three, and in Numbers uh ten nine, God was going to give it to them. So did they need to scout it? It seems like in these verses that it's God's idea. In Deuteronomy 119, it shows a little more of the story. We're kind of at the end of the story from Deuteronomy where the people complained again, and then Moses kind of said, Okay, well, that sounds like an okay idea to send out these spies. So the church leadership has agreed they want to send out these spies. And here in Numbers, we just get the piece where God's saying, okay, I want you to do it this way. Because we just spent two chapters talking about complaining, they're not repeating that here. Um, But just so you know, there's a larger version of this story in Deuteronomy 1. Uh, it, It starts with the people, then Moses, and God's relenting. And the thing he says about this is he makes a condition, and that's what we see in Numbers one. The condition is they need to pick one person from every tribe. Again, sometimes God wants accountability, and in this case, all twelve tribes are going to pick a person, and now every one of the twelve tribes is accountable, right? Except for Levites, because they're not one of the—they're not on the list anymore. Remember, Joseph's tribe got split into Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, So this requires, God requires for them to have responsible representation so that they can be responsible for the results of it because God knows what's going to happen and he knows the next piece here. Uh, So he's going to use this event to test their faith. Uh, One of the reasons it's an act of faith is because of what we see where it says, God says, which I am giving to you uh, is in the past tense or the, um, in verse two, I mean, which I am giving to the children of Israel that which I am giving is in both the present and the past tense. It's not future tense at all. So it's interesting because from God's perspective, he's already given them the land. It's a done deal. It's finished. So he reaffirms his promise by saying that. Um, Everyone a leader in the next few verses as we get into these names. uh, Note that this is not the same list that we saw in chapter one. In chapter one, God picked leaders for each of the tribes. Notice that when humans pick leader, it's, it's, it's an entirely different list except for Joshua, right? So now these were the names from the tribe of Reuben. Uh, shemua, which means, I'll give you the meaning of each one as we go, uh, means renowned one. So this is interesting because when God picked his list, remember the meaning of those names? A lot of them had E-L in them, L, which is God is my salvation. God is the renowned one. So uh, shemua would be The renowned God, or God is renowned, but this one is not that. It's that that Shemua is renowned. So when you get these names, one way to look at these names is that these are there's very few God-focused names in this list. And one thought that you could have is that this is a list of the different ways that people approach getting into the kingdom, right? And it's a lot of ways that people have personality types even. Uh, that we do that. But so you got some people that are renowned and they're they're there. The son of Zakur, verse five, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, which means judger. And we see people like that in the church. The son of Hori from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, which means dogged or dog. Uh, And we'll find out that being dogged is not a bad thing. Like Caleb is one of the ones that becomes a hero. The son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, we have Agal, which means avenger. There you go, Grant the son of Joseph. And from the tribe of Ephraim, we have Hosea, which means savor or salvation, um, who's the son of Nun. And from the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, which means my deliverance, not God's deliverance, the son of Raphu. And from the tribe of Zebulun, uh, Gadiel, and there we have El. It means the fortune of God. So you could... (laughs) I was thinking through that, trying to frame all of these, and maybe that's one of the name it and claim it people. I'm going to be a believer because of the fortune I'm going to get from God. Um, and Don't put too much meaning into these names, right? Um, the son of Sodi from the tribe of Joseph, that is from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, which means my fortune. So you have fortune of God, and then you have my fortune, the son of Susi. And from the tribe of Dan, Amiel, which is my kin is God. Me and God were buddies and I don't know if you've met kind of the buddy theology, theology people, but me and God are friends. Um, Steph and I had a friend who would pray like that, and when he prayed, it, it was almost like he reduced himself to five-year-old mode, and he would pray. You remember that? Um, anyways, uh, God is my kin, uh, the son of Gemma and from the tribe of Asher, we have Sether, which means concealer. What kind of mom would name their kid that? What kind of kid would get that name? The son of Mike, uh, Michael, and from the tribe of Naphtali, we have Nabi, which means Hider, the son of Joseph. So we have Concealer and we have Hider. And from the tribe of Gad, we have Gayuel, which means the majesty of God. Seems to be an odd fit with the rest of the names, right? Um, the son of Maki. But n- that, so we have the last, it's not the least. Overall, my point is, this is a very different list of names than we saw in Numbers chapter one. These names are human choices, We can read a lot into it or we can just kind of enjoy it. These are all the people that are going to approach these mountains. So they're the southern end of Israel right now, right at the edge of the mountains. And odds are, from what we know of Moses' history, Moses has never been over those mountains. He's never seen the promised land. What we know about the people of Israel, they've never been over those mountains before. So you've got believers following God through a wilderness, which we're all familiar with, and now they're arriving at a place that they're calling the promised land. They're right there and at the edge of it but they don't quite have faith that God's going to give them to them. They kind of want to know what's over those mountains before they climb them. And then we get into this part. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up this way into the south and go up into the mountains and see what the land is like. Whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or like strongholds, whether the land's rich or poor, whether there are forests or there are not, be of good courage, and bring some of the fruit of the land. It'd be nice to have some fruit. We've been eating a lot of manna. Uh, now is the time, now the time, and then the little commentary. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they're going to send people in so they can take man's word for it instead of God's. And that's kind of the situation that we have here. So does any of this information matter? And the answer is no. None of it really matters. It doesn't matter if they're in a camp or in a stronghold or they have forests or not. It's the land God's giving it to them but this is where they're going. This is what they have. Um, The promise is that they should go ahead and do it. That promise that God would do everything. So whether or not they're in stronghold seems to imply that the Israelites think they're going to fight them, right? We want to see what kind of, are these strong people or weak? The only only reason you ask that is if you think you're going to fight somebody. You size them up and you want to know who you're going to fight. Um, But we've seen again and again and again that the promises that God would go ahead of them they've been told they wouldn't have to fight. And part of what's going on right now is they're going to fail in this and they are going to have to fight. But initially God said, I'll go ahead of you. I'll do it for you. Exodus 3, Exodus 13, Exodus 33. I'm going fast because that's easy to remember. 3, 13, 33. And Leviticus 20, we've just seen it again and again and again. God promises he'll go ahead of them. He'll go in the advance. Uh, so we look at the this kind of faith that they don't have right now. And it's the kind of thing that happens to us all the time. God tells us to go somewhere. And the first thing that happens is, I don't know if I can do that. And the same week, I'm having these talks with Mache. And I'm totally convicted about it because I have no idea how to lead a statewide organization. Honestly, people, I'm I'm very immature uh, to be doing that kind of thing. Um, But until we trust in God, we can never get over those mountains, right? Until we trust in God, we can never really... Have any sense of being able to do it on our own. So in verse 18, they already knew the answer to that. In verse 18 again, they know the strength doesn't matter. In verse 19, God already said the land was good. They don't need to find that out. In verse 19, it doesn't matter if their camps are strongholds, they're walking by sight instead of by faith. And they want to send out that sight. And this can be one of the great downfalls of the church when churches make decisions and moves, but they have to have all the information before they do it. They're trusting their own knowledge instead of God's knowledge. And that can be a real difficult thing when you get in the middle of COVID season. We watched almost eight or nine churches this morning online to see how do people open church and how is each church handling it. We saw eight different approaches to how to handle what's going on in our country right now. And that's in in part because each person's uh, struggling with how to deal with what the world is throwing at the church. So they're supposed to bring some fruit back. Um, So they want to see it for themselves. They don't even trust the 12 people they're sending out. They want proof. you know. And I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. Verse 21, so they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin, that's the southern Negev, uh, as far as Rehob, which is Damascus. So in these locations, they're basically describing the boundaries of this. They're scouting out the entire land that will later be claimed as Israel. Near the entrance of Hamath, And they went up through the south and came to Hebron, which is west of the Dead Sea, to Ahiman, which is today Jerusalem, Sheshai, which is the Galilee, Samaria area, and Talmai, which is the Sea of Galilee itself. So the descendants of Anak were there, which is why they have all these other names. Um, Now, Hebron was built seven years before zone in Egypt, another little piece of commentary. In this little description that they have, you should know When you go to Israel, it's one of the only places in the world where five different climate zones come together in that small little country. So in the tours they take over 40 days, they're going to see five different climate zones, and essentially they can grow every type of food in that particular piece of land that's seen on the face of the earth. There's very few things that they can't develop and make there. So when they're walking around, they're seeing exactly what God promised them they would see, and by the way, eating in Israel is absolutely outstanding. Some of the best chefs in the world go there because they can get fresh produce from five different climate types, from desert to Mediterranean. Uh, you know, it's just wonderful. The pla- they don't do very good rhubarb, however, so, <laughs> but they can grow it if they want to. Verse 23. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol and there they cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they carried it between them on a pole. I don't know the last time you carried your grapes on a pole but this seems significant. And it occurred to me, are they stealing these grapes? Because grapes don't grow wild like that. you got to get them on a vineyard. So are they buying them? They don't really address how they got the grapes. And, 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 I, and to me, I want to know, who did they pay for the grapes? Uh, they also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. Again, just giving you a sample of the variety here. Um, so the idea here is abundance. The land has what it wanted. Verse 24, The place was called the Valley of Eshkol because the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there and they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. A lot of people think this valley that they're talking about here um, is actually one of the agricultural places today that's just a a fruitful place called Megiddo. Um, So it's changed to a Hebrew name, which we hear about again in the book of Revelation uh, as the battle of Megiddo or Armageddon is where the final battle of all the world will happen. So initially, when the Israelites show up back in the land, they haven't been here for 400 years, right? Because Jacob's family took off. One of the first places they land and grab their grapes from is the place where it's all going to end too. There's a nice symmetry to that. And I thought that was worth pointing out. So they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Oh, the place they called Valley Ashkel because the cluster, which the men cut down there. Yeah, I did read that. And then they returned after 40 days, 40 days. Again, we saw 40 days with Noah we're going to see 40 days throughout the Bible, either 40 days or 40 years as a period of trial and a period of learning or being tested in your faith. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. So now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them and said, We went to the land where you sent us, and it truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. So milk and honey can be one of those kind of Bible phrases that in the church we really understand. The essence of what milk and honey means is that it's good for both. The milk means that it's great herd land. You can have herds that produce milk here. And the honey means, honey is where bees happen, and bees happen where there's lots of agriculture. So if a land flows with milk and honey, it means it's the best for herding your livestock and it's the best for growing different kinds of agriculture, because those two things are thriving. Um, So this is what God told them ahead of time. And we have agricultural prosperity, and we have grazing land. Nevertheless, verse 28, the people who dwell on the land are strong. So whenever, you know, you're going right with what, yeah, this is what God promised. And then the next word is but, or nevertheless, it means a complete shift or a 180 of what they're doing. So the report came back saying, yeah, this is exactly what God promised us. Nevertheless, there's some problems with what we have. So yeah, God's promised you everything, but we have to think realistically, people, about this. So nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong, the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amakalites dwell in the land of the south, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of the Jordan every part of this land is full of people, right? Uh, You should know for a knack, now that we've seen that a couple times, these are believed to be, well, we'll get to that in a little bit. These are believed to be descendants of of the group of people where Goliath came from. It was a large group of people. It was like, you know, today's version of like the Vikings, right? These were just tall, large people. And the Israelites, we can imagine, are not that tall and large because they were slaves and probably not very well nourished. Um, So that's just an issue of food and how you eat, which is another indication of the strength of the land. Case in point by today's standards, when 20-30 years ago we saw a huge influx of, of Hmong people in the Twin Cities, they were by stature easily a foot shorter on average than other people. But as their kids have grown up in Minnesota and they get the nutrition of a Minnesotan, you can see that the next generation of Hmong are getting to be six foot, six foot five, same as everybody else here. So that size of growth has everything to do with nutrition when you're at those key growth ages, right? So when they're looking at the people in this land as probably a malnourished people during those key ages, they're looking at people that would be normal, healthy, grown citizens. Nevertheless, there's lots of people there. So that's the rub. They're also strong. The word strong there is in, it has the, the connotation of a military strength. Uh, they are going to be strong, but that shouldn't be the point for them. This is something where they shouldn't have to do the fighting. So I went back through the names. You got Shemua, the renowned one, who's scared of the renown of these humans. You got Shephat, the judger, who has made a judgment that things are too strong here because it took them 40 days to make this judgment. You got Aigal the avenger, who's not doing any avenging of whatsoever here. There's nothing to avenge. In fact, these people let him just walk through their land for 40 days. And I'm thinking, okay, there didn't seem to be a lot of conflict there. Gadiel, the fortune of God, hoped they would get lucky and find it empty maybe. You got Gadi, who trusted his own fortune and his luck seems to have run out. This isn't where it's going to go. Amiel, my kin is God, found these problems were too big for him, meaning being buddies with God doesn't always give you a life without trials. Sometimes you're going to have some. <laughs> And then I just put Kenny in my notes just off to the side. Sether, the concealer, was going to try. He's probably not talking right now. You got Nahi, the hider. Nobody knows where he's at. (laughs) And then you got the majesty of God here, person here, who seems to have found human glorification because they're elevating humans instead of elevating God. It's not living up to his namesake. The Canaanites we know from archaeology and history were absolute beasts on the battlefield. They were a superior nation militarily. They were strong enough to hold off the Egyptians and strong enough to hold off the Assyrians for generations. So this was not a weak people when it comes to it. So they're telling the truth. Um, In verse 33, if you want to look at the Enoch stuff, they actually start calling the Enoch the Nephilim. Uh, We'll get to that in a little bit, but they must have been just huge. And we find some ruins around the world of people that have giganticism. And there's some groups of people where that runs Gen, uh, genetically with those people. So it could be something like that. So we have a picture of a land that's strong and well defended because all these groups of people probably have to fight each other for territory, right? So it's like a risk board. And in that, they all get good at rolling dice. So God's glory is increased uh, the more impossible it looks to us. Would it have been something where God got the glory if they just walked in and it was an empty land? Or is it that God gets the glory when things get tough? And that's one of those kinds of questions. So if it's not easy, then there's no glory. And I think this is part of like throughout history, why we celebrate people in history is because they did something that at first glance looked impossible. I think I I kept thinking the American Revolution, when you take on the British Empire, the bunch of farmers that had to feel impossible. No way can we win this. The only way they can win it is if they trust in God. And they make their own country. And one of the first things they do is they put in God we trust right on the money. And it's one of those things where those, that was a generation of people who had no doubt in their mind that God was active in their lives. And you think, oh, that's pretty impressive. I wonder sometimes as we go 20 years down the road, if we get that far, if we're going to look back at the COVID era in our country and how people got through it and where they found their strength from it and where they found that they could move forward and live life with courage again. And I hope we have a generation of people that just say, in God we trust. That's all we can do, because humans can't fix some things, and plague is one of them. So we have two names that I didn't mention, Hosea, Saver, and Caleb, because they get singled out in verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses, actually Caleb gets singled out, and said, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are able to overcome it. So he had to quiet the people, which means they got all stirred up when they heard the narrative from the other spies. So at this point, when God's ready, Caleb, dog, steps forward, and he is faithful. And so that's a positive connotation on the word dog. You know? And if you name a kid dog, sometimes that can have a positive connotation. He's ready to go take it. Let's go. Well, he he's wants to overcome it. But notice the human nature of this says, we are well over to um, overcome it. He doesn't say God's going to overcome it for us, or God will go before us. Mm -hmm. He says, we can do it. So even in this, even in this just dogged, you know, faithfulness to God within the community of believers, that enthusiasm is still misplaced. So he quiets them down. He says truth. They can overcome it with God. And there's no mountain that we can't get over. It says nothing about conflict or war. It just says God will fight for them and they need to trust God. And Caleb is on board with just going and moving regardless of the nevertheless. Nevertheless, all these big, strong people are there. And he says, let's go. Big, strong people, God gets the glory. But, verse 31, the men who had gone up with them said, we're not able to go up against the people. They are stronger than we. In case you didn't get the message last time, Caleb, uh, you're being a little dogged. I just, that name is so perfect let's just train you in because clearly Caleb doesn't understand how difficult this will all be. Clearly Caleb's naive and young and unable to figure this out. He needs the wisdom of these other people that the other people have picked. But in doing that, they're going to walk by sight and not by faith. But now they're accountable because they're saying no at this point. Verse 31, the turning point starts to happen. Verse 32, and they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land. This is slanderous. A bad report of land is actually a lie. It was a good land, right? They brought back grapes and pomegranates. So they talked down God's work like it's not a big deal. Uh, it's not that wonderful in the first place, which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. First of all, that only happens occasionally, and it will happen in a couple chapters because God's going to show them what it looks like when land devours people. But at this point, they're lying. The land wasn't devouring the people there. The truth is they did travel through the land, but the lie that's mixed in is land doesn't eat people. Even figuratively, these people were well-nourished. They were large. They were warlike. They were established. They had strongholds. The land was not hurting them in any way, shape, or form. They were hurting each other, maybe. Then the end of that sentence, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. I like how it's in our own sight, <laughs> and we were, and so we were in their sight. We're little people, and they're big people. We can't do anything. What a terrifying thought for the children of God, and what a terrifying thought for us today, because if we look at our own strength and we're terribly honest with ourselves, we are weak. We're small. We're humans. You know, there's what a trillion people on the planet. Am I close? <laughs> do you know planetary population numbers? That's something I think Zach would know. I thought China had that many. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So a billion people, and we're just a couple. What can we do? How can we change anything? How can we do anything? The exaggeration then is also a lie. Not only do they directly lie, but they lie through exaggeration. The, the, I, the lying of taking something you see as a problem and blowing it up to be something that's bigger than it is, is what we call making mountains out of molehills. It's not really that big of a deal. In God's eyes, all of the humans are pretty small. So they want to go backwards. They want to be practical, reasonable, and careful in what they're doing. And in this case, being careful means being against God and not doing what God has told them to do. So this is our first, this chapter is about that. This is God's people making decisions together with their leaders, not moving forward because they're scared and not doing the thing that God's clearly called them to do because they're worried about the problems that might come up. So they're imagining problems, they're imagining challenges that aren't there, and God has already made them a promise. So God's word at that point is not sovereign. And to pretend that God's word is sovereign when we don't do what God's told us to do, that's a problem. And we're not living out the life of Christ that we're supposed to when we do that. And I always think of this idea, and this is where God's going to go with this, we need God and that's okay when we look at problems and say, I don't know how I can do that, we've already lost our faith because God's never asked us to conquer anything. He's asked us to abide in him, right? And he doesn't need us to do his work. We need him. It's a privilege. Remember the whole thing with, what I didn't do the rocks thing last week with you guys. I did one I taught on Wednesday night. I always thought one of the things that gives me great humility is that God can use rocks to do my job if he needs to. God can call the rocks to worship. When Jesus comes in, he says, boy, if these people weren't worshiping me, I'd get the rocks to do it for me. And I always think if I could just be as good as a rock, (laughs) that's all the humility I can have because I'm not expected to do anything more than a rock does. And in fact, some ways rocks are better than me because they go where you throw them. They sit when you tell them to sit. you know They can cause people to stumble, but they get walked on all the time And you think of some of the things that stones do really, really well. And I'm expected to somehow be honored because God loves me more than a stone. And isn't that wonderful? But he doesn't expect me to do anything. He just wants me to abide with him. And that's just wonderful. The Israelites didn't have to do anything. God promised he would go before them and push the Canaanites out in front of them, right? And he's going to do that with Joshua at the first city, right? Most of the mistakes they make is when they think they got to fight people, They don't have to fight people. They just have to love God. Numbers 14 starts with the word, so it continues right through. It's the same story. Israel refuses to enter Canaan. They've had their warning. This is what Psalm 95 verse seven through 11 calls the day of temptation. This is a huge hinge point in the Bible because they're supposed to go into that holy land right now, but they're not going to because this day of temptation, they fail. And throughout the rest of the Bible, this gets used as an example of don't be like these people, right? And these are the people that weren't the grumblers and complainers. These were the good church going types that just don't do what they're supposed to. And in chapter 14, they're going to do what they're not supposed to do, right? And both of those are a lack of faith. So all the congregation, notice the accountability there. It's not just part of the congregation or some of the people, it's all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. Well, yeah, God's made judgment. The kingdom people are being thrust away. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's sadness. There's resolute angry here. Um, And here the people are kind of weeping, right? So they are finding out that this isn't what they're supposed to do. But not because they have faith, but because they don't have faith. A lot of times our troubles are the ones we make. And when we get anxious about things, that's because we don't have faith. In fact, worry and anxiousness is the opposite of faith. It's a lack of trust that God's got it under control. All the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. Knowing that we've gone through the journey back in chapter 12 with Aaron and Miriam, isn't it cool now that it's Moses and Aaron? They're like a team. Aaron's on board. Um, and the whole congregation said to them, so that's the third time, verse one, all the congregation, verse two, all the children of Israel, and now the whole congregation, they are of one mind, the entire nation is guilty, except for they're going to pull Caleb and Joshua out of the consequences. If only we died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness. Now they can't go die in the land of Egypt, that's going back in time, but they could still die in the wilderness. That's where they are right now. So from those people that didn't complain, they didn't die of the quail fragois. Um, They remember these are spies. The 12 tribes were all represented. And now we have all these excuses running around not to do things. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? Again, they're assuming there's going to be a fight. We do that all the time. That our wives and children should be victims. Really? God's going to make you put your wives and children out in front? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Let's go back. Great tail scene where they all decide they want to go back to Egypt. What's interesting about verse three to me is they're essentially calling God a murderer. They're saying God's going to kill their women and children, that it's his fault that this is going to happen. Why has the Lord brought us to this land? So it's amazing how faithlessness so quickly turns into a false perception of God, and they're going right back to that slave victim mentality that they had before. And it's a curse amongst these people. They can't get their heads out of this slavery mentality. They want to go back to their masters in Egypt because at least they had a place to sleep and food that they, they had, leeks and onions and you know that sort of thing. Even though they have evidence that there's better ahead of them, they still want to go back to this. Their feelings of fear are trumping God's promises. When you believe you're a victim... It justifies resenting whoever you think made you a victim. So it's very easy when you become a victim to turn that resentment to God. And that's what's happening here. Because you can blame somebody, you don't have to take personal responsibility. And you don't have to own your own life and do your own thing. So Israel has been led and fed by their God, and now they're having imaginary deaths. And what God has promised is turning into a curse for them, and they're denying God his sovereignty and they choose slavery and protection over self-reliance. Or at least people tend to do that all the time. So rebellion against God's chosen leaders is also against God. So they said to one another in verse four, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. So they want to pick a leader instead of the one God picked for them. So they said to one another, notice that they're not turning to God's word, they're turning to one another. So it's a human-centered rebellion. Let us select. God's pick isn't working for them. So it's a sad picture of how believers refuse to obey. They've been saved. They've seen God. They've started with God. They're acting in faith with God. And now they're putting themselves back into bondage to their own lives. And it happens all the time. Verse five, then Aaron and Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of Israel. And notice Uh, notice the falling on their faces. This image of Moses just falling on his face, again with veggie tails. it's boom, and then there's a puff of dust. The reaction of this Moses who Miriam and Aaron Aaron accused of being so uh, unsharing of leadership is just absolute helplessness in the face of this. He doesn't fight with them. He doesn't argue with them. He just goes to the Lord in prayer. There's no debate. There's just prayer. And we assume that when you fall on your face, that's prayer, by the way. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. When you tear your clothes, that's a sign of mourning. Uh, It's a sign that somebody has died, and in this case, the thing that's died is their hope and trust in God, their faith in God. It's not because an actual person has died yet, but they're tearing their clothes because they're grieving what's happening in this nation. So sometimes the answer to their prayer is actually right there. It's funny that Joshua, their future leader, their answer to their prayer is right there. And he's one of the people that spied out the land. They spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel saying, the land we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. So here's the two voices of of God speaking to the nation of Israel and speaking truth. The land is good. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us. So they're giving all the commentary we need here, right? They're just saying, look, this is good stuff a land which flows with milk and honey, only don't rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread, their protection. That word means shadow, or uh, the protection idea is this, in the desert, a, a protection or a shadow over you meant that you were protected from the sun. And they've had this cloud be their shadow for a very long time. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't fear them, So there's three kinds of fear. There's holy fear, there's healthy fear, and there's harmful fear. And I love this idea. This idea of fear is something that they have to wrestle with as a people. Holy fear is, I think, when we turn to God and we understand his power and we know that there's consequences for our sin. That's a good thing. Healthy fear is when we don't put ourselves in physical harm because we know it's hot and we don't touch that, right? And healthy fear we learn at a young age. We don't want to jump like that on the trampoline because that might hurt right? And then there's harmful fear, which is what we're dealing with here. Irrational, baseless fear that has no rooting in anything other than what we've created. God, 2 Timothy 1.7, has not given us that spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And verses uh, 6 through 9 show us what that looks like. So they have a choice to make. Live in fear or follow Caleb and Joshua. What do they do? Verse 10, And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. That's the decision of the people. Let's get rid of the people that speak hope and life and courage, because it bothers us. Because if they are right, that means we're faithless. If that person of God is doing it the right way, and I'm not doing as much as they do, now I feel guilty. Let's just erase them. It's not kick them out of the camp. I mean, goodness, Miriam's still hanging out around the outskirts somewhere, right? It's they're just, they want to kill these two. This is the response of the people where there's no tolerance for people of faith, no place for them. They don't want them around. You know, just let them go to their church and sing their songs. What difference does it make to you? But no, they can't sing their songs. It's the Grinch who stole Christmas, right? <laughs> so I think it's even frustrating for a person of faith that's a lukewarm believer to even talk with somebody who's alive for Christ, because it shames you a little bit. There's a little bit of holy fear that comes in going, if I'm not, maybe I'm not doing the right thing here. If you're alive for Christ, you don't have that fear because you're just living with the hope of Jesus Christ in your life. And you're inviting everybody to come with you to take the promised land. Let's do it. It's ours. God's going in front of us. And anything shy of that is terrifying, right? I'm not trying to say that the people were right. I'm just saying that we are those people sometimes. So that was the response of the people. Stone those two. The response of God steps in because he's not okay with Josh getting stoned. So the response of God is in the end of verse 10. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. And the crowd goes silent. oh Then the Lord said to Moses, he's not bothering with the people. I love that. He's just going to talk to Moses. Moses, how long are these people going to reject me? Because that's what this is. Not doing what God's asked is rejection of God. How long will they not believe me? All the signs which I've performed among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. So this is fair. Let's be honest. What God's suggesting here is fair and it's just for these people. They don't want to be in the Holy Land. Fine. I'll work with somebody else. God doesn't need them. They need him. To strike and disinherit them is a conclusion for people that have totally rejected him. It makes total sense. So Moses is offered a new patriarchal status. This puts Moses in the same category as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of the descendants come through him. He'd be the fourth patriarch. That's an honor for Moses. You got to think Moses is thinking, well, yeah, that'd be great. But we know he's a humble guy. That's not how he thinks. It's a real offer, I think. We have to treat it as a real offer, that God's actually considering this and wanting to work with Moses on where to go from here. And God's powerful enough to go either way. He could do whatever he wants. In Exodus 32 verse 7, he offered the same thing to Moses. So God's now the second time. He's sick of these people, right? He just says, no, nah, maybe not. I remember when I first came into the faith, I was reading through this and I thought, is, is God failing here?" Like, is this a failure of God? And it's a really difficult passage if you think about it, right? God's shown them his majesty, walked among them and led them, and they still reject him. Which is something where when people don't believe, you think, boy, there's no miracle that you could see that would get you to believe. There's nothing that can change your heart but your heart. And the only thing that changes our hard heart is the Holy Spirit doing a work on us. The power of God doing an absolute miracle and putting something new in our hearts. So when we try to convince people of the faith, it's like, I can't convince you. I can only pray for you. Like, you've got to figure this out on your own. Choose life. Choose the promised land. Verse 13, and Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear it. For by your might, you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of the land. Moses, instead of accepting this, like, sure, God, let's, yeah, just you and me, let's end these people. He prays the opposite. He actually prays for these people. He intercedes again for the people of Israel. So his first thought for Moses is God's, Moses' first thought is God's glory. Isn't that amazing? His first thought here, in the pro, they're not the problems in front of him, not the people. It's just, God, your glory is going to get tarnished if you bring these people out to the wilderness. They've heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands above them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The Canaanites have heard of you. The Jebusites have heard of you. The Egyptians have heard of you. They're all talking about you because they've been out in this wilderness for a year. The legend of what happened in Egypt is spreading to other cultures because Egypt still has trade routes. These people have all heard of you, Lord. They know you're at work on the world And if you kill all these people, that's going to hurt your reputation. What a generous prayer. Verse 15. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people to land, which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. Now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great. What a great prayer. What a great prayer. Moses is again, just to rephrase or paraphrase this, God, if you kill these people here, it hurts your reputation. And at that point, if God does this, that would actually be the real failure. You failed to get these people where you said you were going to get them, which is sometimes where people are like, well, maybe this was a testing thing from God. He was just challenging Moses. And I think that's a good read on this too. It's an alternative read on this, where God didn't really seriously mean that he would make Moses a patriarch, but he wanted to test Moses' faith. How would he react to it? Just as you have spoken, the Lord is long suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Look, God, you've forgiven them for a year. Forgive them a little bit more. What Moses does at the end of this intercessory prayer, verse 18 on there, he's quoting God himself. He's memorized what God has said, and he's quoting it back. So in the faith, in the church, we've made a great habit of memorizing the scriptures so that we can pray them back to God. We can align our will with God. So Moses isn't putting his own will in here at all, people that listen to the recording are going to be like, Sean, (laughs) must have been thirsty there. So I love that Moses actually, he doesn't even have a Bible, but he's memorizing the Bible and he's praying it right back to God. And what a great thing. The proclamation comes from Exodus 34.6. If you want to put a note next to it and go read it, there's only one slight difference between this. First of all, Moses is my kind of memorizer. He doesn't memorize it word for word. So it, he doesn't have to deal with people that worry about which version because he's kind of paraphrasing, but it really is a quotation. If you look back at Exodus 34, you can see that. The only thing he leaves out, he has long suffering, mercy, iniquity, uh, forgiving iniquity, tra- and transgressions. And he mentions his mercy in verse 19. Those are all attributes of God that God said about himself in Exodus 34. M- Moses leaves one attribute out, grace. It's one he doesn't mention. All Moses is praying for is mercy, right? Grace maybe was too much to ask at this moment, <laughs> but he's asking kind of just forgive him, Lord, like let this one go. Um, this is a picture of Jesus, I think. He quotes God's word and he knows that when Jesus was tested in the wilderness, he responds to Satan with scriptures. And it's how we do battle is we know God's will, we know God's word, and we're able to say it to people, Right. So there's a testimony here in verse 13. The land is there. God's ahead and behind in verse 14. There's a reputation involved. Verse 15 and 16 deal with God's glory and God's word in verse 17. He prays for it. He's magnifying it. So there's God's reputation, God's glory. And in verse 18, he prays for God's attributes to be known and for what God wants in the first place, which is God's will. Moses' intercessory prayer is, God, your reputation, your glory, and your will be done. Please do these things. God is forming Moses into an image of Christ like he does with every single one of us. We're all supposed to get more and more like Christ. And that's what he's been doing with Moses and how he's doing it. Romans 8, 29, he's turning us into an image of Christ. We're supposed to be more Christ-like. Verse 20, Then the Lord said, I've pardoned according to your word, but as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. <laughs> I like this because you don't know which way God's going to go here, right? I can get my will done with or without these people and my glory will go. Don't worry about my glory, Moses. I'll take care of that. Verse 22, because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and the wilderness have put me to the test now these 10 times. Okay, that's an interesting Bible study that I did not get done with. Have we gone through 10 tests? And I'm sure, I, I don't know, i I just didn't go through it. And none of the commentaries I had really went back through that. So if any of you want to take on a cool Bible study, try to identify the 10 tests that the people have put God through. And they have not heeded my voice, verse 23. Certainly they shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. These people who rejected me will not see what I promised them. Oh, that's terrible. These are people of faith. They're following God. These are people that were saved. They've been saved by God. These are people that have been redeemed by God. These are people that have a sacrificial system where their sins are accounted for by God. These are people we would call saved. And God's saying they're never going to see the promised land because their faithfulness cuts them out. This is a terrifying thought and should put the fear of God into us. This idea that I have pardoned in verse 20, God answers Moses' prayer and gives mercy. But there's a consequence. If people believe they're Christians, but they go live in sin, there are consequences to that sin that will happen to them. And this is a tragic, horrible thing that we see in the church, especially the American church right now. We see lots of Christian people making sinful decisions and then having to deal with the consequences of those mistakes, sometimes for the rest of their life. God pardons them according to his word. God elevates Moses' word here. The relationship between God and Moses is real. God addresses his glory and he addresses his will, but he completely ignores his reputation. Did you see that? God's not too worried about his own reputation. His reputation will hold up. So he pardons them, yet there's going to be consequences. Namely, they're just not going to see the abundance of a faith-filled life. They're going to be in the wilderness for the rest of their life. This is my own terror. And I think sometimes when you go through things in life where you say, okay, I want to live this way because I'm tired of being in the wilderness. And all of Numbers 1 through 10 was things they were doing to prepare to get themselves out of the wilderness. But then they get to this moment where God's going to give them this opportunity where it's more than just following God day by day. They're going to take the new land and their faithlessness never allows them to have that majesty in their life, right? They have their personal majesty through their name, but God's majesty never really lands on them. This is tragedy. It's a horrible tragedy. But my servant Caleb, we'll end on that good note with Caleb here, my servant Caleb because he's a different spirit in him has followed me fully i'm going to bring him into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it so Caleb stands alone Joshua's already serving Moses god blesses Caleb as an individual it could be and this is why people think the levites weren't included because the 12 tribes didn't were not the levites too and Joshua would have been in that you know the son of Nun or whatever So this idea that the Levites maybe see the land and they're not part of this whole equation is one of the beliefs about this passage. But that stand of faith that that Caleb took is going to single him out. And I think this is great. God blesses individuals. So despite the fact that he's dealing with a whole nation, there's one faithful guy. He's going to actually let that guy have the abundance of the promises. And God still does that today. There's individual choice that every person has to make. And God watches those choices. He knows your heart. Proverbs 16, nine, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Verse 25 in our chapter. Now the Amicalites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn and move out into the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. Walk away. God's giving them a new direction. Go back to the wilderness. So they're all the way to the door. They got their faithfulness is going to send them back. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? That's a new designation. God's now calling them evil. So to disobey God makes you an enemy of God and, and an enemy of God or people that don't have God with them are evil. I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. This allows them God allows people to pronounce their own judgments. right? He does this often in the Bible. What do you think should happen to someone who does this? And the person answers, and okay, well, that's what's going to happen to you." David had that happen with Nathan. In verse two, if you look back up at the top of the chapter, they said, "If only we died in this wilderness, God's going to say, "Fine. you get what you asked for." And we've seen this in the previous chapters too. This is the day the humans made. And again, God gives them what they want. And this is the lesson that gets repeated again and again and again. Psalm 106, Nehemiah 9, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 16. We are going to repeat this chapter or look at this chapter forevermore as an example of what happens when we don't have faith. Don't be like these people. So God's glory gets magnified. He gets an example of faithlessness that all people throughout history from here forward can look back to and say, don't be that. So God's still going to record it. He's going to document it and he gets magnified even in their faithfulness. That's because God wins and that's how he operates. Even Moses and Aaron then are complicit because remember they sent the spies out. They're the ones that went to God. We see that in Deuteronomy. So they're not going to get to see the land either because they agreed to all this. How many people are in the church today that are loved, saved, fed by God? I mean, the the manna they're eating gives them the strength to rebel and they're still doubting God or doing things outside of the Holy Spirit. How many people are like that? People that can think they're really good, but they're just plodding through life in the wilderness, hoping for the best, and they never see the abundance of the Holy Spirit at work. Not a good place to be. And our prayer should be, not me, God. Please don't let that be me. Let me see what you have for me and let me do it immediately, like Caleb like when a dog, when you say sit, the dog just sits, not my dog, but most dogs. <laughs> Let me be like Caleb. When God says, stand, I stand. And when he says, sit, I sit. And I do what God wants me to do and trust that God's got it all under his control. And you'll find yourself in these situations where you get to stand for the Lord. And the Lord gives you those opportunities and then you take them. And then God does wonderful things, which gives you more faith. It's a cycle that you get into. Verse 31, but your little ones, whom I have said, who you said would be victims, that was back in verse three, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. These kids you thought I was going to kill, I'm going to use them instead of you. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity. The infidelity there is like a marriage agreement that's been broken. They've cheated on God until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. So we see carcasses a few times. Your dead hunk of meat (laughs) is going to end up in this wilderness. The meat that you travel in will not make it into that land. So that 40 years is the 40 days that you spent in rebellion against me are going to be accounted for one year for each day. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, For each day you shall bear a guilt, your guilt one year, namely 40 years. You shall know my rejection. You rejected me, I reject you. Perfect justice. Verse 35, I the Lord have spoken this. I will surely do this to all of this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In the wilderness they shall be consumed and there they shall die And now the men whom Moses sent out to spy the land who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing the bad report of the land, those very men who brought the evil report about the land, they died by the plague before the Lord. So the leaders are going to be dealt with now. Everybody else that kind of went along with them, they're going to be dealt with over the rest of their life. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive of the men who went out to spy the land. So 10 of them died, two of them live. So, you have an option. Faithless inaction. Option two is faithless action, which is what we see next. Right? So, both of them are faithless, and that's the problem. It's not whether or not we do things or don't do things, it's if we do what God wants or not. So, they move without God in the next verses. It's an interesting way to end this whole story. Then Moses told these words to all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. Oh, this is bad. We don't like this result. Lots of people regret their sins but notice they don't repent of their sins. Ah, I really wish I hadn't done that, but they don't realign themselves either. You wonder if they would have if God would have given grace instead of just mercy. But that isn't what happened, according to the Bible. What verse was I in? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, They mourned greatly, and they rose early the next morning and went to the top of the mountain, saying, here we are, and we will go to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. Okay, these are saved people. They have confessed, and they, they seem to be turning around here and doing something, but the Lord has now given them the command to go back to the wilderness. The command has changed, and now they're doing the opposite. They're doing something. In fact, the act they're doing is the same act that they were supposed to do a month ago, a month and a half ago, which is interesting. Can we do things in the kingdom that we're not supposed to be doing, that yesterday were the right thing to do. That's really confusing for me, because isn't it a good thing to run the daycare at church? Isn't it a good thing to be on the worship team or to teach a message? Isn't it a good thing to counsel somebody and encourage someone? And maybe if we're doing those things because we've decided they're important for us to do, but they exhaust us and they tire us, like running up this mountain had to be exhausting but they're doing it for the glory of God. Well, really, they're doing it for the glory of themselves. And that's just a horrible place to be. If God tells you to do those things, it's a lot different kind of an equation. So they run up the mountain, they're up there, and Moses says in verse 41, now why do you transgress the command of the Lord? And they're thinking, we're we're doing what God told us to do. But it's kind of like, well, it's too late at this point your heart has been shown. For this will not succeed, Moses says. Do not go up, lest you be defeated by your enemies. For the Lord is not among you. For the Amicalites and the Canaanites are there before you. And you shall fall by the sword because you've turned away from the Lord and the Lord will not be with you. Now, if Moses says this, you would think that's the end of it, but they're still in defiance. So this whole... (laughs) Frankly, I think this is one of the passages that's the most damning for the name it and claim it kind of faith gospel movement, right? If you just visualize it and believe it hard enough, God will do it for you. Not really. God's going to do what God's going to do. You can visualize all you want. If you're not doing God's will, you're going to have problems with that situation. This is very, it means that we can't just do things because we're told that they're good things to do. We have to do things because God has told us to do them. Does that make sense? It's a really tough concept. It took me years to put my head around this because I grew up in the church. And I knew that when you grow up in the church, there's just things you're supposed to do. And the most holy people do the most stuff. And that's just how you learn it when you grow up in the church. But at some point, it's got to be your faith. You have to choose to do things because God is inspiring you to do them. And you can't just do things because your parents said to do things or your grandparents said to do things. You have to do them because you chose to do them. There's no other substitute or the Lord is just not with you. So it's not our way, it's God's w- way, even when the action is identical. Singing in the choir is identical for a faith-filled person and a faithless person. They're both singing in the choir. But one's getting rewarded and one's not because it's about the Spirit, and God knows how to discern them. First 44, they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord or, nor Moses departed from nor Moses departed from the camp so the gods stand back, Moses stand back there's enough people that stay back that they're still a nation so they're not alone <laughs> but they presume things and presuming things is an act of rebellion so they're eager to presume it and they do it so this is the big bold plan that goes nowhere <laughs> And I don't think Moses is chuckling like I am. I think he was a much more mature believer than I am. right? But the, he's mourning these people. He loves these people. And he doesn't want them to do this. But at this point, the, re, the reason they think they're doing the right thing is because they've determined that it's the right thing to do. That's by definition, self-righteousness. You've determined it's the righteous thing to do. But that's not how we're supposed to act. God, Jesus has choice words for the self-righteous. We're never supposed to be that. We only do in faith what we're supposed to do. In fact, it's not even our job to do. It's our job to abide and follow God. God does everything. So the phrase, let go and let God. Verse 45. Then the Amacolites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain, they came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Horma. So they got the smack, right? They got beat to a pulp. So. Often you see Christians that are beat up because God is trying to get them to a point where they just act in faith. And they're just beat. They got the tar beat out of them again and again and again. And I don't know about you, but I've been there a few times. And the answer to that situation is to just rest in God. Come back and find your peace with him. He's your stronghold. He's your shelter. He's your peace. And you come back to that relationship with God and start again. So rebellion and not doing what you've been called to do, in the first part of these two chapters, and now we have rebellion and doing what God has not called you to do, doing the wrong thing. Rest in God. Stop wrestling with God. Stop fighting with him. Matthew 11:28 through 30. You can turn there and maybe even mark this, and I'll wait for people to turn. I'm just going to end on that thought because I think the New Testament reflects this, and Jesus spoke like aloe. He just rubbed the perfect balm into this kind of moment for Christians. And the way he puts this in Matthew 11 is phenomenal. So Matthew 11, verse 28, come unto me, all of you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does that mean we'll never have trials? Heck no. Does it mean we don't have work to do? Heck no. We have lots of work to do. That's what a yoke is all about. Put the yoke on so you can plow the field. And we're going to go out and do that work. But take my yoke is to work with God and just listen to God. Learn of me. Read the Bible, know God's word like Moses did, and don't just learn it, but learn it and do it. And then I am meek. God modeled what meekness looks like. And, he, and meekness is to wake up every morning and look for God's cloud where are we going today, God? What do you have for me today? Then find rest. What a beautiful thing to let, that, let God have that business of what you have to do next, right? Our immediate goal in the wilderness, of course, is sanctuary. That's what you look for when you're in the wilderness. And God says, I'm your sanctuary. Just come home. And when you come home to that place, you can watch God do great things through you and with the people you're with, because God knows how to do marvelous and he knows how to do wonderful things. And he doesn't need us to do those things. He just wants to do those things with us. He seeks us out. So God didn't want you to climb the mountain. He didn't want them to shout victory. He wants them to do what He wants them, where he wants them to go and what he wants them to do. He wants them to watch God work in their life. And for most mature believers, I know that's the framing they start to take, is that you'll say, oh, that's really good. And they'll say, I didn't do any of this. God did this because they've reached that point in their life where they've walked with Christ long enough to know it is so much more God than it was them in anything that happened, you know? And and I think that that happens just over and over and over again, where God's going to continue to shape us and mold us to be more Christ-like. And sometimes we'll have trials. Sometimes those trials are from God because he wants to see how we'll react. And the people of Israel reacted bad, but we have the word of God, so we know that's not what to do we shouldn't do that. So we move forward and we move forward with God. Amen. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for your grace and your favor. We thank you that we have both mercy and grace, that you give us truth and love. Lord, may the truth sting us in such a way that we turn to you and we're corrected to be as you want us to be. Lord, I know that you have a plan for each person in this room and that plan is designated and chosen and set apart for them And Lord, we only seek to know what that is and how to do it. And Lord, until that becomes a real thing, I just pray we can learn to wait and abide and just be blessed to receive your word, Lord, to know your people, to fellowship with the saints until we have a clarity, Lord, about what you would have us do and how you'd have us do it. Lord, give us faithfulness in our marriages to not be, have infidelity with you or with the people in our lives. When we say yes, let it be yes. When we say no, let it be no. And we follow your will, Lord. So help us to be faithful to the people around us in our marriages, Lord, in our uh, uh, parent-child relationships, in our friend relationships, Lord, in our connections with others. Lord, may they all be things that glorify you. May the people who know us know our grace and our mercy as we forgive them as you forgive us. May it just flow just like that, Lord. And may your peace be in our lives. Thank you for the story of Moses. Thank you for an example that we should not do uh, and just help us to be faithful and not faithless in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.